Audio Parfait. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. Go to their Instagram or Twitter at the underscore gallery to see just a few of the prints that they have available. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, the gallery is offering our listeners 15% off of their purchase by using the code 15 off. Go to thegallery.com. That's the G-A-L-R-Y.com. So your wall will never be boring again. Yes, that's the girly aspect of getting your no, hair done. No, it's not. This one, no. I disagree. You're a man. You don't know. What's that got to do with anything? Because you don't know. Yes, I do. No, I have hair. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Mm. Hi, guys. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to Open a Fucking Book. I am Stephanie. I'm Kevin. Stephanie, where are we? Uh, we are on episode two of Douglas Adams. Yep. When we last left him, he had just lost his director's gig with Footlights Comedy Review for Kicking in the Stalls. And uh, he was at the lowest he'd really ever been before. Uh, Douglas isn't someone that we're going to talk about depression or anything like that a lot. Um, but he does have his bouts with it every once in a while. And, and this was when he was at a pretty low point. Writing wasn't going the way he wanted it to. He wasn't any really able to uh, perform like he wanted to. Um, he finally got this gig to direct and one-up John Lloyd, and that didn't kind of quite go the way he wanted it to. So he was pretty low. And there were only really two respites that summer that gave him any real joy. The first... It's an interlude, but which one, one which would give him his most polished and repeated anecdotes. It happened to Adams one April day in Cambridge train station. Having arrived early for his departure, Douglas bought The Guardian magazine, a cup of coffee, and a small packet of what they, I guess we'd call it cookies or Fiber cookies, they call them digestive biscuits. Yeah, they call cookies biscuits. Yes, but digestive biscuits. Not just regular biscuits. They made a clear point of saying digestive biscuits. So I'm guessing those are some type of fiber cookie. Or digestive cookie. Okay. Like those Metamucil cookies. Well, no. they got to be fairly popular. Uh, because he went, he went and sat down at the same table as a thoroughly unremarkable city gent type. It was Adam Adams's consternation, which always sold the story as real, on the realization that his perfectly respectable-looking neighbor had picked up his Douglas his Douglas's packet of biscuits, opened them, and had taken one. He was to write about the realiza realization being quote. 
The sort of thing the British are very bad at dealing with. There's nothing in our background, upbringing, or education that teaches you how to deal with someone who in broad daylight has just stolen your cookies. Nonetheless, young Douglas's reaction was, after a respectable recovery period, to reach over and take the second biscuit, marking his territory very clearly, and another biscuit subsequently snaffled by the city gent. And so it continued, each stubbornly sticking to the same gambit, he would take one, Douglas would take one. Someone's going to shit their pants. He would take one. Douglas would take one. He would take one. Douglas would take one. Whereupon, Douglas's nemesis arose, exchanged, quote, meaningful looks with him, and departed to the wrong writer's relief. It was, of course, just a few minutes later that his own train arrived. He picked up his newspaper and discovered his own unopened package of biscuits right there on the table. <laughs> Quote, The thing I, I particularly like about this story is that somewhere in England, there has been wandering around for the last quarter century a perfectly ordinary guy who had the same exact story, only he doesn't have a punchline. <laughs> Shamelessly, even he used the anecdote in So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, one Arthur is wooing Fenchurch. So, again, another one of the things that happens to him in real life gets put straight into his writings. That is amazing. <laughs> he also wrote and performed Unpleasant at... Hold on. That's where that commercial came from. The old lady who was stealing that young man's cookies. And that, yeah. Yeah, that's where that came from. That's awesome. He also wrote and performed Unpleasantness at Brody's Close at Edinburgh Fringe Festival. But these two incidents were not enough to keep the black dog of depression away. He knew just where to go to get the proper coddling over himself that he needed. He went to his mother's house. I was going to say, mommy. In Stallenbridge, Dorset, his old room was waiting for him rent-free. At any time, his mom was glad to see him and extended the comforts of home cooking and family life. Ron, Janet's second husband, the vet, was kindly and always took interest, and Douglas was fond of little Jane and James, his half-siblings, then aged 10 and 8. Once, many years before, during the school, school days, Douglas had been in the house working while infant James had been upstairs asleep. Leaving Douglas in charge, Janet went out to run some errands. When she returned, Young James was sitting on the sofa, looking at Douglas with wide-eyed fascination. Oh dear, did he disturb you? Not at all, Mom, Douglas said. I thought he might be a little lonely up there, and I brought him down. It is debatable who needed whose company more. Douglas, you're going to come to find out, is not big on being alone. That makes sense. He's uh, He always needs an audience. He wants an audience. He likes to feed off of other people. He likes. He loves to show other people what he's doing and get the praise back for it. He's he's not one for being alone. Douglas's room was even rural enough to offer a view of a pigsty, though at the time it was being knocked down in order for the site to be redeveloped as an old people's home. <laughs> Young James was fascinated by the JCB, which was knocking the stuffing out of the pigsty, though. For once, the more robust idiom would be literally accurate, knocking the pig shit out of it. 
The aha critical response is to be distrusted, but no one can help thinking of the opening scene of Hitchhiker when Arthur's, Arthur Dent's house is flattened by the local council's bulldozer. Real life again. Mercifully, in the new year, Douglas was indeed rescued. John Cantor, his witty friend from Cambridge and a man of kindness and sensitivity, had visited him over Christmas and helped cheer him up. Janet remembers John with affection. At first, she was not sure she could join. He could join the festivities. John is Jewish, but Janet soon discovered that there's not much that will keep him from a party. John was sharing a house in Islington with another Cambridge pal, Jonathan Brock, who had played opposite Douglas in the ADC in Sheridan's The Rivals. Why not? Suggested John. Come back to town, kip on the vast sofa, kick out the black dog, and lay siege to the BBC once again. So. He did. No, of course he did. At this point, there re-enters into Douglas' life another figure of legend, Simon Brett. Then, a light entertainment producer at the BBC, Simon had always liked Douglas's work as well as Douglas the man. The senior producer, John Simmons, loved the kamikaze briefing, so Douglas now had two strategically placed managers, or heavy dudes in movie speak, poised to support him. On February 4th, 1977, Douglas met with Simon and others from the BBC and was said to have three ideas for them. No one can really remember what the other two were. But the third was a little science fiction comedy called The Ends of the Earth. It would later be changed to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Eee! They loved it. Everybody fucking loves it. So or on, you better. <laughs> so on March 1st, 1977, Three weeks after Doug Douglas's lunch with Simon Brett, the BBC approved the making of the pilot of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Then, before committing to the whole series, it sat on its hands for six months. It is a slow process. Agonizing. Getting anything made is a slow process. In any case, Douglas was thrilled to get the commission, and his morale shot up. He was still hard up, of course. Living off his parents for the BBC paid him a thousand pounds for what turned into nearly six months of work. Now, mind you, in inflation backwards to 1977, thousand pounds is worth five to six times more than it is today. Still, it's not a lot. No. But he had a real project and the promise of income and a friendly face in London, and not just anywhere in London, but Islington which was to become the center of Douglas's metropolitan universe. His mom would bring him tea and peanut butter sandwich, sandwiches, which he was very fond of, and he used his mother's tea for an inspiration for one of his inventions, the infinite improbability drive, which uses tea as a Brownian motor generator. His hero, Arthur Dent, is saved by it, but, quote, he no more knows his destiny than a tea leaf knows the history of the East India Company. The pilot for the radio show would begin production in June of 77. Back in Stallbridge, Douglas found it frustrating waiting on the gears to turn in the BBC, so he also sent his hitchhiker pilot to Robert Holmes, the script editor and occasional writer of Doctor Who. He was hoping to get a commission to write a Doctor Who storyline that, if it followed the usual practice, would last for four half-hour episodes. He succeeded. Bob Holmes, 
liked what what Douglas had done a lot, and on that basis, called him in for a meeting with Anthony Reed, who was just taking over from Bob, and the producer, Graham Williams. They encouraged him to have a go. Douglas's resulting Doctor Who script had great promise, but it needed a lot more work that he undertook with grace. Douglas had always enjoyed Doctor Who, and unlike some English literature graduates, never looked down his nose at it on the grounds that it was a genre. The Pirate Planet, the first of the episodes written or co-written by Douglas, is rated as one of the best by the many Doctor Who enthusiasts who have analyzed every episode and, thanks to the internet, are the keepers of the flame. It's full of cortex-mangling concepts, transportable hollow planets, time dams, cybernetic control systems, and even a high-tech bionic pirate complete with eye patch and robotic parrot. Doctor Who is the best. The pirate, typical human being, uses all the breathtaking power and technology at his disposal for a trivial self-aggrandizement, beating around the universe, stealing other planets' resources like some cosmic shoplifter. Douglas went on to write two more Doctor Who episodes, The City of Death, co-written with producer Graham Williams, and Shada. He also wrote Doctor Who and The Cricket Men as a film treatment, featuring one of those sickening time loops. This never got very far, but the ideas were subsequently put to good use in Life, the Universe, and Everything. Shada, unfortunately, got caught up in a strike at the BBC and was never transmitted. However, Douglas did recycle parts of this when Dr. Cronitis, a retired Time Lord whose rooms in Cambridge so resembled Douglas's own, appeared in the first Dirk Gently novel. Ooh, we love Dirk Gently. Yes, we do. It's a shame it was canceled after two seasons. Yeah. In this story, Douglas once again scratches away at the time travel paradox. On this occasion, with literally cosmic ramifications, like some terrible intellectual itch, what happens if you go back in time and waylay your granddad with a quick beer, thus preventing him from meeting your grandma? There are more Freudian exp- expressions of this notion involving killing your mom, but the paradox is the same. If you succeed, you no longer exist, so could not have succeeded. In which case, you do exist. So, around you go again in a logical, impregnable circle. This conundrum was something that clearly fascinated Douglas, for he came back to it frequently. Uh, Zaphoid Beeblebrox summoning his grandfather, Zaphoid Beeblebrox III, an ancient with a contraceptive and a time machine. Here, use this condom. <laughs> the City of Death was a four-part script started by David Fisher, a regular and reliable scriptwriter who had been suddenly waylaid by family problems. Douglas and Grand Williams finished off finished it off under immense time pressure, a director and a studio slot having been booked only days away from the realization that they had no script. Douglas was locked up in Graham's study where he lived on black coffee and whiskey. I get the whiskey, but ew, black coffee. Gotta stay awake. Yeah, but... Whiskey's not gonna keep you awake. No. I mean, unless you drink enough to keep you puking. No, nah, he had to keep, he had to drink enough to keep him going, but puking would kind of go against what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah, I get that. 
Meanwhile, Douglas, encouraged by John Cantor, was commuting back and forth from Dorset to London, gradually re relocating in the city as his morale improved and he had more work. John had studied law, now had a job as an advertising copy copywriter, and was sharing a house in Arlington Avenue with trainee barrister Johnny Brock and his wife Claire Gorst. The house boasted a large sofa on which Douglas was invited to crash, and he frequently did when in town. John, Johnny, Claire offered friendship, warmth, food, and stability in addition to somewhere to sleep. Douglas was very fond of them and dedicated the first hitchhiker novel to Johnny Brock and Claire Gorst. And quote, all the other Arlingtonians for tea, sympathy, and a sofa. Aww. He was also given a job as a junior producer at the BBC, though it didn't work out. He was never good working with other people's formats. But in 1978, he would accept a job offer to become script editor for Doctor Who. Ooh. He would also collaborate with Lloyd on a Dutch cartoon series called Doctor Snuggles, which they were paid 500 pounds and had great fun doing. It was a, it was a children's cartoon, so they were able to be kind of lighthearted without getting too vulgar. And it was Dutch, so they could, you know, kind of go some places they couldn't go with the English types. I suppose, you, yeah, that makes sense. Now, they go into depth about the, about the casting and recording process. I mean, chapters full on just the, the casting and recording process. But how long it took to record the, uh, the whale falling out of the sky and hitting the ground. They spent an entire day just getting the sound of the whale hitting the ground. I'm not going to go into that. Because it gets very, I don't want to say boring, but nobody really wants to hear about the casting process of, for a radio show. So no, I just, we just want so, to hear about So I just kind of skipped over it. But there is a good story. In order to get the proper voice separation, from all the actors, the place wasn't was was large, but he didn't want ever they didn't want everybody crowded around each other like talking into the same microphones and everything. They wanted it to feel like everybody was spread out because they're in space. So Jeffrey Perkins, the producer, hid his actors all over the building, even stuffed into cupboards. He recalls, "quote Richard Golden." A little guy who played Mole in Toad of Toad Hall must have been about 80 then. He was a sweet little actor who was absolutely bent over double. He was Zaphoid Beeblebrox IV. I'd put him in some cupboard to do his bit, and it must have been about a half an hour after we'd finished that sequence when this little voice said, Is it all right if I come out now? I said, Oh, I'm sorry, Richard. I forgot about you. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, don't the forget poor that. poor 80-year-old man stuck in a cupboard. <laughs> they just for, I mean, all, luckily he didn't say in there longer than a half an hour, but after they had finished recording. So, 
you don't, we don't know how long he was actually in there. Well, he was in there for as long as it took to record the sequence, and then about a half an hour after that. So however long it took for him to record Zaphoid the fourth part. But if they were recording everybody at the same time, everybody's parts, but they were all spread out. Yeah, so we have no idea how long he was actually stuck in that cover. Oh my gosh, that poor man. <laughs> now don't forget that while Douglas is riding the Hitchhiker show... He's also writing the Pirate Planet bit for Doctor Who. So he essentially went from no work at all to so much work that he could barely handle it. And the problem was that Douglas agonized over every word. Hitchhiker and Doctor Who left Douglas exhausted. Quote, I had simply run out of words. Since John Lloyd always beat me in Scrabble, I reckon he must know a lot more words than me. So I asked him if he would collaborate with me in the last couple scripts. Prehensile. Anaconda, Ningi, those are three words I would have never thought of myself. When I write a paper for school, I agonize over every freaking word, and when I'm done, I'm mentally exhausted. I get I get where he's coming from. Now, the problem with, with all that is that Adams was never much for acknowledging creative debts. Uh, he had no problem giving credit to someone that wrote something grand on their own, but when it came to his work, he was all, look what I did, and all by myself, which became problematic when you have writing partners. Yeah. So near the end of 77, Claire had become pregnant, and it was time for Douglas to move. So him and John Cantor decided to live together early 1978 in a small, quaint little flat on Kingsdon Road or as John Cantor elegantly put it, quote, a real shithole. <laughs> kind of like her last house. Yeah, we lived in a shithole. <laughs> we made the best of it, though. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> on March, March 8th, 1978, at 10.30 in the evening on Radio 4, and with no publicity perceptible to human sense, the first episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was broadcast. The BBC moder monitoring service was not sensitive enough to detect an audience for it, so it recorded a listening figure of zero. Ooh. Then, something unusual happened. Douglas had naively asked Simon Brett some months beforehand what the reviews would be like. Simon had cordled kindly in order to save Douglas's, Douglas the disappointment, quote, this is radio, Douglas. We'll be lucky to get a mention anywhere. But the program was reviewed, and that very week in two of the quality broadsheet papers, the Times and the Observer, the latter, the shrewd Paul Ferris, who loved it and was particularly taken with the babblefish, remarked, quote, this just might be the most original radio comedy for years. What's more, the program was promoted by the most powerful mechanism known to man, one which marketing people try the hardest and with the least success to manufacture, word of mouth. Yeah. The first happy listeners were stunned. They told their mates, who in, ter told, in turn told their mates, like neutrons hitting nuclei and producing more neutrons, a great demographic chain reaction cascaded through the population, by the second week, most of the students in the country were tuning in. By week three, word had got out in the world at large, even as far as publishers in London. Simon Brett says he knew something extraordinary had happened, 
when his squash partner, an engineer, started talking about it. By week four, the production office was receiving an unprecedented 20 to 30 letters a day, one addressed simply to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Megadodo House, Megadodo Publication, Ursa Minor. Someone in the post office had, had written, Try BBC on the corner of the letter. You would have had to have been living on a pole on a small island not to have heard of the series by week five. When the final episode was broadcast, April 12, 1978, Douglas was famous, though he did not know it yet. Because he, it was a voice over the radio. Nobody knew what he looked like. Nobody knew who he was. Well, this opened the, pu- the eyes to many publishers for the novelization of the radio show. The BBC passed on the opportunity, to their later dismay. So, Sony Meta, Meta, M-E-H-T-A, he's a, an old Indian chap. From India, not American Indian. Obviously, they're in London. Okay. And Pan Publishing jumped on the chance. Pan acquired the world rights for an advance against all earnings of £3,000, half payable on signature of the agreement and half on publication. Douglas and John Lloyd were the original parties to the contract, but John Lloyd's name was later deleted. And thereby hangs a tale. Although not a huge risk for Pan in, in 1978, 3,000 pounds was a decent sum. John Lloyd says that at the time he was badly in debt with an overdraft. Quote, it seemed like a fortune. Writing together was perfectly natural. We'd written lots of things together. A pilot for the BBC, a film treatment, a cartoon series for that Dutch company. We tried lots of things and we were very close friends. We shared a flat together. We got on very well as writers because we weren't the same sort of writer. So, there was very little competition. It was just sort of a cooperative thing. We laughed a lot. We had great fun. Douglas, living in squalor with John Cantor, was also thrilled to get an advance. He loved the idea of having cash to spend. John recalls Douglas heading out to the local store to buy some Coke. Coca-Cola, not cocaine. (laughs) And coming back with a crate of the stuff, just because he could. I mean, if you're going to splurge, go for Pepsi. He was a Coke guy. And uh, he never bought single bottles of anything ever again. Well, back then, they still had cocaine in the Coca-Cola. Well, I don't think that has anything to do with it. But maybe. But when Douglas sat down to write the novel, he felt, as with the script and sketch writing, that he should do it on his own without John Lloyd. He wrote to John suggesting that he alone write the book and that he was sure that John would see the sense of doing things that way. John was hurt, not so much because Douglas wanted to do it alone. John could understand that even though he thought they did well together. It was the fact that Douglas had written him a letter instead of sitting down and talking to him. It put a rather large rift in the relationship And even though they would reconcile, it would always be a taboo subject between the two. I wonder if he was too scared to speak face-to-face or if he just didn't have the time. I I personally feel like it kind of puts a stamp on it better. Like, this is what I want to do. Here's the letter. That's what I'm going to do. And then you go off and do it. 
if you sit down, there's a chance that the other person might be able to talk you out of something you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, that does make sense. Because he really, he really wanted to write it on his own. Problem was, John had helped writ had helped write a lot of the radio show. So if he's going to use stuff from the radio show in the book, he has to at least, at least give some credit to John. And with credit for a novel comes money. That makes sense. Yeah. So although John and Douglas were no longer co-writing the novel, they had already booked a holiday in Corfu together to write it, along with Mary Allen and a number of other friends. Corfu is a little island off of Greece. One crucial outcome of the vacation was that the paucity of entertainment on offer, combined with the chilly September weather, inspired the friends to resort to parlor games. Once charades was played out, Douglas recalled an exercise favored by an old English master, Frank Halford, his old English instructor, in which the class was required to invent new additions to the dictionary. Lloyd was particularly enraptured with the pleasures of taking well-known place names and fitting them to definitions of feelings, actions, and objects which struck a chord with all the players but had never been given their own word before and was soon making good use of the holiday by jotting down the best entries for further use. Besides this incidental creation of, co of a comedy classic and the fights over girls, however, the most memorable motif of the trip for the friends seemed to be towels. And Douglas Douglas's complete inability to keep track of where his, his, his had gotten to on the few occasions when a trip to the beach was possible. Quote, Whilst I was tearing my hair out in frustration, searching the bathroom, the washing line, the bedroom, under the bed, even in the bed, everyone else in the party would sit, waiting, patiently drumming their fingers on their own rolled-up towels. I realized that my difficulty with my own towel were probably symptomatic of the profound disorganization of my whole life, and that it would therefore be fair to say that anybody who was a really together person would be someone who would really know where their towel was. See, you're getting so much, you're, you're learning so much. Because his, it's his real life. It's, guardians of the Galaxy, or not Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is his real fucking life. There's a lot of it. Guardians of the Galaxy, Hitchhikers and Guardians, whatever. Hitchhikers and Guardians, whatever. Name of the episode, <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guardians, whatever. Douglas headed to his flat with large, when they got back, headed to his flat with large amounts of Coca-Cola, a typewriter, and Withering Heights by Kate Bush. Douglas loved to listen to trance-inducing music while he wrote and started writing while John Cantor just tried to survive. Alistair Beaton the author and playwright identifies four stages in the collapse of an author's self-esteem. They go roughly like this. One, this is bloody difficult. I may be blocked. Two, oh no, oh no, I can't manage this bit at all. Three, gloom, gloom, bloody hell. If I'm honest with myself, I can't write any of it. And four, the truth is, I just can't write at all. I'm a fraud and finally have been found out. Douglas will go through all four of these stages while writing pretty much every book. I think every 
author does that. But... I've gone through all four of those for, stages while for, I've been in writer's block. For, for, for people who love Douglas Adams like we do, I think it's okay to say that Douglas can be a little bit of a drama queen. I was gonna, he's very when dramatic. It, when it comes to not being able to write. As far as throwing himself on the ground and weeping if people aren't giving him the type of praise he feels like he needs. He's, he seems like he's very... He's a dramatic person. Drama king. That's how a lot of comedians are, though. A lot of performers are, especially comedic Over performers. The top they, acting. They, they go from one extreme to the next. They go from extreme comedy to extreme drama, almost at the drop of a hat. Maybe he's bipolar. I don't think so. Douglas did not get very da- very far down the beaten scale for his first book because he had, he had a lot of uh, material already. But he was a man who needed company. In solitude, he could easily fall into a kind of gloomy vacancy. Writing, as well as its technical challenge and its brain-bruising calls on invention and talent, is lonely. And the writer's world tends to shrink to just a room and a keyboard. John Lloyd says, quote, Douglas was determined to prove himself because he'd been a cooperative writer with Adam Smith Adams, Grant Chapman, Ringo Starr, and me, He'd never done anything except for the famous sketch about the kamikaze pilot on his own. And so he was determined when he got the contract to do Hitchhikers that he would do the damn thing himself and prove he was a proper writer. Do the damn thing. Characteristically, Douglas delivered light. In his introduction to the compendium volume of Hitchhiker's novel, he describes his delinquency like this. After a lot of procrastination and hiding and inventing excuses and having baths, I managed to get two-thirds of it done. At this point, they said very pleasantly and politely that I had already passed ten deadlines. So, would I please finish the page I was on and let them have the damn thing? Meanwhile, I was busy trying to write the second series and was also writing the writing and script editing Doctor Who because... While it was very pleasant to have your own radio series, especially one that somebody had written in to say they had heard, it didn't exactly buy you lunch. Yeah, he just didn't have his priorities in order. Like, set some time each day to write for this, and then write for this, and then write for this, and then set some time aside each day for yourself. he's, He's famous for saying he loves being a... Famous professional writer. He just doesn't love doing the work to become one. Which is writing. Yeah, I I see that. On the final page of Hitchhiker, where the characters set off to the restaurant at the end of the universe, looked like a shameless means of wetting the market's appetite for a sequel. But that's not what it was. Pan's fiction editor, editor, Caroline Upshur and Sony Meta had just gotten annoyed by being strung along by Douglas, who was not guilty of deliberate lies about delivery so much as optimism and sincere self-deception. Story goes that they asked what he had done, he told them, and they said, that'll have to do, and they'd send someone to pick it up. More than likely, it was just that Douglas figured he'd be able to round off the story more satisfactorily by the time the delivery person got there. He was wrong. <laughs> so if you've ever read the first book of Hitchhiker, the Hitchhiker, and you think, oh, they're ending it that way, so it's a sequel. That's not how he intended to, to end it. 
He just didn't have any... He couldn't write anymore. They didn't give him any more time to write. So they just kind of had to stop it. Yeah. Homeboy got lazy. Yeah. The novel for Hitchhiker was not the first reincarnation of the radio series, though. Ken Campbell of the Science Fiction Theater of Liverpool had heard the series and had immediately thought it could and should be staged. He was very quick off the mark and sought out Jill Foster to license the dramatization rights. His was to be the first of many theatrical versions of Hitchhiker that continue to this day. There's, uh, I didn't get too much into that because it's not really about Douglas, it's more about Ken. But there was one instance, I believe it was the second time he tried to produce, produce it. Um, instead of moving stages in and out, he decided to set up multiple stages and then put the audience on a kind of hovering bleacher system. So they could be pushed from one stage setup to the next without having to move. However, this was extremely loud and made it hard to hear the play. <laughs> That's funny. But I, I, I just thought of something. I know it's a newer technology, but if Douglas, is he still alive? Who? Douglas Adams. What show are we on? No, he's not. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. If he were alive today with the newer technology, all he would have to do is talk and his computer could type for him. And that would be awesome. He wouldn't have to write. It, it, but it wasn't the it wasn't the sitting down at the typewriter and typing it out that he hated. It was simply just coming up with things. Yeah, but he'd be able to go for walks and talk into his cellular device to write down notes. I think if he were alive in modern technology, he would be writing more books. Well, he was alive in modern technology. No, I'm talking about like with the, the text-to-speech thing and... I don't know if that was out when he died or not. It might have been. No, I think there was special software for that, but now it's like available. Well, if anybody was going to have that technology, it would have been Douglas Adams because Douglas loved technology. Anything to make his life uh, easier. No, he just, he loved technology. He loved... Because about with technology and Douglas, it wasn't like an easy thing because he loved to get in there. He liked to learn how to code. He, and we'll get to that later, but he loved technology and everything that went into it. He loved learning about it. He loved talking about it. He loved uh, trying to code. He wasn't the best coder, but he he tried like hell to code. All that stuff. He loved it. So it wasn't it wasn't a oh make my life easier. He just loved technology. The ideas for. I get into it later. The idea for a smartphone pretty much came from him long before Steve Jobs ever had an idea for an iPhone. He loved that stuff. Okay. So, back to Hitchhiker. Another deal executed before the publication of the first book was for the recording rights. The BBC passed. Again, they settled with a small company called Original Records. Then, they got the whole cast back together and re-recorded the series for mass market record sales. It sold about 120,000 copies. Douglas was finally making some real money, so he indulged a little bit, mostly in expensive sports cars. That's one of the many um, characteristics he gets from his father. He loves fast cars. He doesn't always drive them the best. He, does, he, he gets a Porsche uh, 911 and wrecks it almost immediately. But um, he does love his fast cars. Well, I think most Europeans love cars. That's kind of ingrained in their yeah. 
I, I, I guess. I don't know. I've never been to Europe. Well, that's where all the good cars come from. Italy, mostly. And Germany. Germany. Yeah. Now, all through 1979, Douglas got more and more famous and did more and more interviews. He was the guest of honor at the world annual sci-fi convention, Seacon. Hitchhiker would spawn its own convention a year after publication called, of course, HitcherCon. Along with the fan club, I kind of like the way they say it in England better than they do here. Because we just say Z and they say Z, And that's that's much more science fiction-y, I think. Yes, it is. Fan club called ZZ9 Plural Z Alpha. Sounds better than if you say ZZ9 Plural Z Alpha. Yeah. Yeah, I like the Z better. Is it ZZ Top? Or ZZ Top? I'd go ZZ Top. But that's not Fucking what they, Americans they have call to themselves ZZ Top. If yeah, you, but what do they know? I know we have some listeners in the UK. Email us, infoaudioparfait.com, or tweet us at openafingbook, and, and let us know, is it ZZ Top or ZZ Top? I know, like, I have friends from Australia, and I'd prefer to call McDonald's what they say in Australia. What? They, they call it Maccas. Maccas? Maccas. So... Austra- have you ever have you ever like tried to follow along with Australian slang? Yes, I it's, I know a little bit of their slang now. God damn, it's confusing. Yeah, so I I know a little bit of their slang now, and it, it's it's very interesting, and that's I like some of their words better than. I ours. like most other people's words than ours because we yeah, all sound so. like hicks. Anyway. ZZ9, plural Z Alpha, also had a magazine named Mostly Harmless. Any of you who have the entire set of Hitchhiker books will know that Mostly Harmless is also the name of one of his books, which we will, of course, come back to. He loved all of it. The interviews, the cons, the book signings. And on top of that, he and Pan's press officer, Jackie Graham, a lot of Grahams in the story, just almost as many Grahams as there are Johns. In the story, had and just, Adams, huh? And Adams, yeah. Well, well, there's one other Adams. The other, the last Adams, just it was John Lloyd. He just changed his name to Adams for the comedy show. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, and the Douglas Adams that died on the tractor. Anyway, Pan's press officer Jackie Graham and he had just started a relationship, not one that was destined to last forever, but. They had fun and remained friends afterwards. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was published October 12, 1979 as a pan original with initial run of 60,000 copies that disappeared instantly. They reprinted and reprinted again and then again. Within three months, the book had sold a quarter of a million units, the first 100,000 in only four weeks. Ooh, damn. And it had been number one on the Sunday Times paperback bestseller list since publication. Two days before the publication came, there was an aha moment of sorts. Pan had arranged a signing session for him at 12 noon in London's premier sci-fi specialist shop, Forbidden Planet. So they loaded in a car and headed to it. But as they approached the venue, things got going very slow. There were people thronging the streets in unnatural numbers. The driver wasn't sure what was going on, figured a demonstration or a march or something. But 
it wasn't a demo or a march. What had caused the congestion in the West End that day was a huge crowd of people enthusiastically converging on Forbidden Planet to meet Douglas. Nerdy people, congregate! A proposed one-hour signing session had fans queuing around the block, and it lasted so long into the evening that he was late for dinner. He started signing at noon. Damn. He had stopped the traffic. It was the day that Douglas knew he was condemned to everlasting fame. He had made it. And nobody ever loved making it more than Douglas Adams. Yeah, he... Because he was he's not the, the, the Kurt Cobain type that hates his own fame. He loves it. He relishes in it. And unlike a lot of people who take their fame and get this big head, and he, he gives back to all his friends. He's constantly putting on big parties and shit for all of his friends, all the way back to fucking school. So he, he keeps a sense of himself, which is another reason why I just fucking love Douglas Adams. Yeah, that's awesome. Two things happened after Hitchhiker went to number one. First, Douglas went and bought a Porsche 911. Like I had said, soon after, crashed it. Dumbass. The second, when Sony Meta and Caroline Upshore at Pan negotiating terms with Jill Foster and Douglas for the restaurant at the end of the universe. For much, much more money. Well, yeah, it'd be better be more than 3,000 pounds. The success of Hitchhiker also caught the attention of other publishers, and soon after, there was scarcely a country in the world with a local publishing industry that Douglas didn't appear in. The money started rolling in, so he needed a process of sorting it. Third for pleasure, third for retirement, and a third to the accountant for tax and other legal things. We'll get back to that accountant at a later time. Ooh. Sounds shady. Production on the second radio series was delayed several times. While Adams was meant to be working on a script for a stage adaptation of Hitchhiker in April 1979, he was also employed as script editor for Doctor Who. The recording on the first day scheduled for the second radio series, May 19, 1979, was left incomplete because Adams had not yet finished the script. Further scheduled recordings on the 11th of July and August 1st of that year were also canceled, this time due in part to Adams trying to work on the LP re-recordings of the first series as well as its novelization. The reason why these final radio sessions were, were quite so legendarily fraught was that David Hatch, the controller of BBC Airways, made something of an uncharacteristic blunder when he managed to secure a singular honor for Hitchhiker, the front cover of the Radio Times, on the understanding that the five episodes ran not weekly, but over a single week at the very start of 1980. A number of factors made the creation of the second series particularly painful for the writer, not the least of which was the concurrent script deadline, revised on more than one occasion for a TV pilot of Hitchhiker. Early in that year, Lloyd had submitted a proposal for a small screen adaptation, which he would produce, leading in May to a formal commission by L.E. boss John Howard Davies of a script due by August, which was ultimately delivered in December. <laughs> the requirement to begin 
story once again from scratch should have been a relatively easy one, as Adams had started out writing for TV with Chapman anyway. But he could be forgiven for a slight schizophrenic feeling with Arthur Dent poised in so many confusing situations in so many media at once. So you're trying to write for this one character all these different situations for all these different medias and keeping it all together knowing what you're doing by yourself. Because he's got the book, he's got the radio show, and now a TV show. And none of the three follow one another. They start, they all kind of start off the same and then they kind of veer into their own stories. Yeah, that's... The recording of the final episode of the second series was completed on January 13th, 1980. The audio mixing of the episode was not finished until January 25th. The day it was transmitted. The, uh, they actually, I don't have it in here, but they actually call, call back to the, uh, South Park process of being just right in the nick of time. The final five episodes completing the second radio series were broadcast in the end of January, 1980. With money coming in, Douglas, having a job, decided maybe it was time to leave the shithole for a little better accommodations. No mansions, just a larger flat in a nicer part of town. This was about the time where cell phones were getting popular in the early 80s, and they are also the shape and weight of a brick. If you've ever seen an old 80s cell phone, yes. that's what it looks like you're holding a brick up to your face. I remember yes. the episode uh, Saved by the Bell when Zach Morris gets out his... Uh, cell phone that you gotta pull the antenna up out of and uh, you can actually see the cancer forming in the side of his face from the thing. Yes, yes. Douglas had to have one. He lived all things tech and would piddle around the flat talking on it, even taking it to the bathroom. It had horrible reception. The interference sounded like, quote, someone having a piss from a great height. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for TheBeardStruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over The Beard Struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them, my beard has never looked felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15 at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! Douglas took to eating out almost nightly. The restaurant trade in London in the early 80s has has a lot to be grateful for. Douglas did much to sustain it. 
He was wildly hospitable about taking friends out for exotic meals. Sometimes, though, his friends resented it. He also fell in love with Apple computers. He was an Apple guy. Staunchly an Apple guy. Even though he was friends with Bill Gates, he was an Apple guy. In many ways, he loved fame. He could never quite believe it. Insecurity gnawed at him all the time. Quote, am I really a star? Perhaps if I act like one and people clearly treat me like one, it will by some process of magical thinking become an unassailable truth. His editor, Carolyn Upcher, who combined emotional sensitivity with an uncompromising determination never to be a corporate drone, was not amused when he ordered, not checking with her first, a bottle of champagne in a smart restaurant with breathtakingly smart restaurant-type markups. There is a legend still whispered in luncheon circles that she told him he could pay for it himself. I mean, technically he did, right? Well, usually for that type, as if you're if it it was if you're doing a um, a kind of a corporate luncheon and you order an entire bottle of champagne, the company's supposed to pay for it. Oh, they did not. As anybody who has worked in an office for more than a minute will appreciate, internal memoranda are more often a vehicle for politics than for information. The ease of email has only exacerbated the problem. Caroline is a fine editor, not a tactician. It is hugely to her credit that she could never be bothered with the nuisance of the blind copy to the CEO, life is too short. Companies have their own style, and Pan's idioms was racy and no nonsense. Here's a memo from the Pan Files that speaks of Douglas's sometimes exasperating need for attention. To Sonny, CC Jackie Graham, Re Douglas Adams, from Caroline, 29 October 1979. Douglas is under the impression he is having dinner with you and Jackie on Wednesday, October 31st, Halloween. He had assumed I would be there, but I told him, quite truthfully, that I had a date for dinner that night. But if asked, I would be happy to be around here for drinks earlier on. I was actually intending to wait until we had tied up terms for the second book before getting him in for a drink with you, but now he has hooked onto you via Jackie. I guess it makes no difference. But he is now pestering me about the fucking evening approximately three times on Friday and twice already today. I can't dine with him on Wednesday, and I'm sure poor Jackie has had her fill of him for a while, but maybe I'm wrong. Do you or Jackie want to finalize what you want to do with the fucker on Wednesday and let him know, or let me know so I can give him an answer next time he calls? Thanks. Underneath Carolyn wrote in longhand, quote, Bet you 10 quid he gets on to either one of us by noon today. See. Wow. <laughs> he could... Uh, Get on people's nerves? He, he could pester people <laughs> until he got uh, got what well, the answer he wanted. I mean, at least she handled it like <laughs> with him face-to-face. -face. She handled it very well and professionally but then she went behind his back and basically he's i don't a i don't fucking think, idiot don't, tell me what i don't think she said anything to them that she wouldn't say to him honestly i don't know i don't it sounds like she may not have said anything like that to his face yeah 
I mean, if he's paying her, then... So coping with Douglas' stupendous talent for restaurants was the least of any publisher's problems with him. The shatteringly stressful vexation was getting the text out of him in the first place. The stories of his delinquency about deadlines are, sadly, all true. Famously, he loved deadlines because he loved the sound of them whooshing by. The reality was that his procrastination was just not funny. It caused a deal, a great deal of grief for his publishers, but for them, it was just a matter of professional inconvenience and commercial pain. Poor Douglas suffered agonizing despair when he felt he just could not do it. He was known to fall onto the carpet and weep. Throw little hissy fits. In 1980, the BBC television adaptation of Hitchhiker was finally underway. A fully animated version was briefly discussed in the autumn of 1978, but it was eventually decided to make the most of the series feature live action and only animated the guide entries. The script for the pilot was delivered in December of 1979, and terms for the five remaining scripts were agreed upon January 1980. While there was some resistance to a project considered unfilmable, Alan J. W. Bell, whom Douglas more or less hated, was given the duties to produce and direct the TV adaptation. John Lloyd was signed as associate producer in early 1980. Production on the pilot episode began. They worked on it from March all the way through that summer. The final edit of the pilot episode was completed on July 2, 1980, and it was premiered for test audience three days later. Further test screenings were held in August 1980. Based on successful test screenings, the cast was reassembled to complete the six episodes of the series in September of 1980. Production continued through the autumn with filming and recording occurring out of order. Recording and production of the final episode continued into January 1981. The show ran from January 5th to February 9th of 1981. Douglas has several cameo appearances in the TV series. Episode 1, one of the drinkers in the background of the pub. If you remember, I, you haven't seen the TV series, but I know you saw the movie and read the books, where Ford and Arthur go to the bar to order all those drinks to help them with their uh, conversion from Earth to spaceship. Douglas is one of the drinkers in said bar. Episode 2, The Man Who Walks Naked Onto the Ocean. The original actor had the part called in sick. Episode 2, also, the guide entry on The Worst Poetry also uses Adam's likeness as the basis for the illustration of Paula Nancy Millstone Jennings, who wrote The Worst Poetry Ever, if you remember. Again in Episode 2, in the future Encyclopedia Galactica, Douglas makes a cameo appearance as one of the serious cybernetic marketing division members. And then in episode three, an image in the guide entry on an important and popular fact, along with animator Rod, L- Rod Lord, who provides a self-portrait. At the same time, he was preparing to write the second novel. It was the finale of the Hitchhiker Saga, or so he thought. While the first novel had a certain flow to it, he admitted to having no real direction for the second. He knew how he wanted it to end, with the prehistoric Earth stuff. Douglas hoped that his new fans would 
Be happy to see Arthur's, Arthur's saga reach a conclusion for him and Ford philosophically accepting their fate, making do with the knowledge that all life on Earth was to be futile and perhaps settling down with an ice girl. Aww. From there, however, quote, I got very stuck because I knew how it ended, but I couldn't work out how to begin it. In the end, I thought, oh well, sod it, I'll go with the end. So I wrote the end, and then I wrote the chapter before that. Then the one before that. I eventually got all the way back and said, ah, that must have been the beginning then. Several years later, he explained to Lloyd, quote, I have a difficulty with the beginning of books. It's a truism as you get older. Each year goes more quickly, and the reason for that is very simple. That when you're one year old, you've lived through a whole year, and it's your whole life over again. When you're 30, it's only a 30th of what you've been through so far. Relatively, it's a small amount. Now, when you start writing a book, you think, well, what's the first word going to be? The? I mean, is the a good enough word to begin this book with? How many books have begun with the word the? It's got to be something more interesting than that. Maybe the first word should be aardvark. Because at that moment, the first word you write is the entire book. You want an entire book with just the or aardvark? Aardvark. Restaurant did not appear on the typewriter easily. Expectations, of course, weighed heavily on him. He had set a standard and he felt he had to abide by that. But the real genius of his reputation was, as a writer, guaranteed to give publishers nervous breakdowns, was the rush to get restaurant ready for the printers in the autumn of 1980. He had put it off and put it off, gotten extension after extension, until eventually Sony Meta, Pan's editorial director, contacted him and begged, quote, We've given you all the extensions, and we have got to have it. Sudden death or else. We have to have it in four weeks. Now, how far have you gotten with it? Quote, I didn't like to tell him that I hadn't started it. It seemed unfair on the poor chap's heart. <laughs> it was an exaggeration, but it was still clear that the jumbled scraps he did have would require a gigantic effort to be readied for publication. Luckily, Jackie Graham was caught in the middle and was well-placed to find a solution. Reading a house for a month and imposing a complete monostatic existence on her still-at-the-time boyfriend until the manuscript was up to scratch. Quote, It was extraordinary. One of those times you really go mad. I can remember the moment I thought, I can do it. I actually can get finished in time. And the Paul Simon album had just come out, One Trick Pony, and it was the only album I had. I listened to it on my Walkman every second I wasn't actually sitting at the typewriter. It contributed to the sense of insanity and and hypnotism that allowed me to write a book in that time. Another pattern first established with the completion of Restaurant was the author's perfectionist distaste for his most recently completed piece of work with the memories of the pain it caused him to write overriding any appreciation of the finished article. As he said of Restaurant, quote, I was very unhappy with it and I had to write it under a lot of pressure and then when it was all done, I just really wanted to wash my hands of it. People wrote in and said, it's much better than the last one. Nonsense. But when I went back and read it again after a certain amount of time, I actually liked it a great deal more than I had when I had wrote when I wrote it. And I thought, well, maybe it was okay. Tirelessly self-critical, he insisted, nobody could say anything bad, bad about my writing that I haven't already thought ten times worse. 
I'm a professional at this job. I do not want to have my ego massaged. Which he really did. Yeah, he did. And most people are their own worst critic anyway. Yeah. In time, his second book would become Hitchhiker, which would become the Hitchhiker installment he most begrudgingly admitted to favoring. But with his deadline just about met, and knowing that the TV series would come the exact same plot arc, leaving Arthur and Ford with their hopeless appreciation of the unspoiled beauty of the Earth, he certainly saw Hitchhiker as an almost closed book, declaring with film with a familiar aspiration, quote, It's the last of all that, I hope. I want to try another field now, like performing. It was published October 1980, and then would follow the cameos in the show, hoping that he'd be completely done with Hitchhiker. Now, by this time, him and Jackie were no longer seeing each other. They split amicably, staying friends. Douglas was a big man with large appetites. He was amusing, hedonistic, wealthy, and, for much of his life, single. He moved in sophisticated media circles. You may guess that he did not live with the Live with the monk-like chastity all the time. He liked women. He was romantic, extravagant, entertaining, and sometimes a little careless. He also did not do things by halves. For, in late 1980, he fell deeply, precipitously, and passionately in love. With himself? No. <coughs> He's not an egomaniac. <laughs> oh, a little bit. No. He can no more have resisted than a deck chair could resist a tornado. He was blown off his feet. He met Sally Emerson at a writer's talk in Sterling, Scotland, when her first novel, Second Sight, was published as he was publicizing the restaurant at the end of the universe. They were both young novelists of about the same age. He was Cambridge, she was Oxford. Sally is a talented writer, and she had been a terrific editor for the literary magazine Books and Bookmen, before its publisher self-destructed. She's slim. She was slim, dark-haired, and had a sexy smile. At the time, she was in a state of change. Her job had vanished, and she had been with the same man for eight years when, just as they were both getting restive, she married him. They had much in common, but it was not until they met each other again in New York, where Sally's novel was being published, that they started an affair. <gasps> Douglas. They went off to Mexico together. The relationship continued back in London, where Sally lived around the corner from Douglas and Highbury. She nudged him to change his flat and his agent, Jill Foster, for a more experienced one in Ed Victor, and helped him find the duplex in St. Albans Place. Their relationship was tortured and romantic. Sally said, quote, We understood each other very well, and we were on exactly the same imaginative wavelength. It was the joy of our relationship, but it was also contained within it seeds of its destruction. When one of us was upset, so was the other. It was as though there were no walls between us. I would be constantly leaving him, furious at his massive egotism, but would return before I even got to the bottom of the stairs. Douglas was knocked over by his emotions. Here he was, a materialist skeptic with a scientific worldview, completely, sentimentally, embarrassingly in love. Sally and Douglas lived together in St. Albans Place, both writing. Primary job for Douglas's new agent, naturally, was to land him a book deal. And although the writer had sworn that Hitchhiker was a closed book, Ed quickly convinced him otherwise, landing a particularly persuasive contract for a third entry in the series, 
which maintained the arrangement with Pan, but added a lot more zeros to the contract with publishing companies all over the world. Arthur might have symbolically thrown his guide into the river, but Ford just had to fish it out and go again. He didn't really want to write the third book. He had, however, made plans for how the series would develop. So this time, rather than adapting dialogue and direction into prose, he would put Doctor Who's story he had written that never been made directly onto the page, Doctor Who and the Cricket Men. The first hazard he faced on trying to re-engineer an adventure intended for the Doctor to suit his own lackadaisical cast was that Ford, Arthur, and co. just weren't the types to volunteer to face danger. They spend the majority of the book fleeing from danger. Yes, they do. And Doctor Who does the exact opposite. He goes toward the danger. Quote, The problem is, I have a plot which actually signifies something. And there are momentous events afoot. But I created such a feckless bunch of characters that before writing each scene, I'd think, well, okay, who's involved here? And I'd mentally go around to each of the characters in my mind, explaining to them what was going on. And they would all say, yeah, well, so what? I don't want to get involved. Either they didn't want to get involved, or they didn't understand it. In the end, Slarty Bartfast had to become the character who had get them all to move on, and that really wasn't in his nature either. You see, all the characters are essentially character parts. I had a lot of supporting roles and no main character. Once again, Douglas was laboring constantly on his opening pages and the necessity of saving Ford and Arthur before the cricket plot could even get underway. As Emerson's novel glided off her typewriter, Adams was, as ever, honing what little he had with every last line tested on his lover as he slowly continued work. Progress might have been faster if it hadn't been for the stream of love notes he left for her to discover around the flat. Quote, I already love you more than when I last saw you at quarter to three. Aww. There's a, I don't. Why aren't you that romantic? Because we're married. What? (sighs) (laughs) It seemed as though trying to piece the Hitchhiker crew into a Doctor Who story would be more a hindrance than a help. And with huge blow to his personal life, the two-thirds completed manuscript was trashed at the end of the year and rewritten absolutely from scratch. That such a dramatic move was made by Douglas on one of the rare occasions when he looks set to meet the deadline is made even more remarkable by his admission that he rewrote the story, quote, in circumstances I wouldn't want to build a bookcase under, let alone write a book. These circumstances were, of course, that as the festive season neared, Emerson missed her husband and felt both smothered by idolization and overwhelmed by Adam's singularly needy, singular neediness. By Christmas, she had removed herself and all her for her belongings from the flat. Adams was, quote, She went off with this bloke on, to me, the spurious grounds that he was her husband. How dare she go back to her husband? He begged Sally, insisted that no matter what she thought, she would always be the one. But finally, he stood out of her way, 
his one telling supplication to her before she returned to newfound matrimonial bliss that she should not, under any circumstances, please ever go to bed with John Lloyd. Volunteering to open himself up to such inevitable emotional pain might well have inspired the wise Adams adage, a learning experience is something that tells you that thing you just did, don't do that. But the misery was palpable, and he called the split, quote, a huge domestic crisis which knocked me for a six. I couldn't think of anything funny to save my life. I wanted to jump off cliffs and things like that. Nonetheless, he had no option at that point except to stagger numbly onto another plane and head off to the west coast of the USA for the first time for a month-long publicity binge. He did, however, have the presence in mind to call Sony Meta and tell him that the latest draft was null and void and needed to be reworked on his return. Quote, practically every word would be thrown out. Not least the intended dedication for Sally, who I love above the title, which was cut down to the less touchingly witty for Sally. So he said he couldn't think of anything funny, but... Basically, what he says to her is very funny. I know you're a cheating whore because you cheated on your husband with me. And since you're going back to your husband and I know you're going to cheat again because once a cheater, always a cheater. Please don't cheat on your husband with anybody named John Lloyd. Well, with his best friend, John Lloyd. Yeah. Because they had always competed over well, everything, including women. Yeah. Like, fuck whoever you want. Just well, don't just, fuck this guy. That's, Douglas, that's kind of how he does, though. You, you struggle with certain things a certain way, and he would use humor. Yeah. I, I just... That cracked me up. Life, the universe, and everything featuring the Starship Titanic hit the stores in August 1982, going on to outsell the two previous books in the series, and that Christmas, the New York Times bestseller list featured all three books in its top ten, making Adams the first British writer to achieve such a thing since Ian Fleming. Stephanie, who is Ian Fleming? The world's greatest spy. James Bond. James Bond! I was like, wait... You did a banjo thing. What is it? The, what the bass. fuck is it? Bass, not a banjo. Bass. Oh, it sounded like a banjo with your do 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 do. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Now, through all this, Douglas is still mending a broken heart. But with his network of friendships tr tried in the furnace of footlights, post grad poverty, and countless parties, there were many people he could turn to. Mary Allen and he were still close. But when his daily, hour-long phone calls began to reach the level of life burglary, she suggested to him that the best way to avoid loneliness was to get a new roommate. After a consultation, they whittled the list of potential flatmates down to just a few, including a high-flying lawyer friend of Mary's whom Douglas had met at a party or two, Jane Belson. When Mary put Jane and Douglas together in the same household, there was no question of romantic matchmaking. In fact, numerous candidates for the flat were turned down precisely because they were likely to end up in bed with him. 
This seems curious in retrospect, as Douglas and Jane could have not been more uncannily matched if they had been the last remaining examples of human species. Their differences were as complementary as their similarities. Adams recognized, quote, I'm a man of obsessive enthusiasm, great bursts of energy, followed by two days in bed. Jane is totally different, which is why we complement each other so well. A few weeks older than Douglas, Jane was born in London to Australian parents and had been at school with Johnny Brock. After studying history and economics at St. Hilda's College, Oxford, she worked briefly for the Treasury before being called to the bar in 1978, eventually becoming one of the most admired and certainly the youngest barrister in the UK, specializing in divorce law. She, Douglas Adams is a man whore. Above all, she was immensely tall, incredibly intelligent, strong-willed, and a harder chain smoker than even Douglas at his most writer's blocked. She also possessed a striking, dark-haired, dark-eyed beauty, which was inevitably instrumental in transforming Adam's longings for Sally over to her. Oh. And although Jane knew Sally better than Douglas at first, she could not help but be won over by him as well. They were so equally matched and headstrong that this was not to be the beginning of a perfect, peaceful love match, but a passionate, loud, and frequently explosive relationship, which would endure largely because at the 11th hour, Jane would usually elect to be the one to give in to whichever of Douglas's demands had caused a particular argument. It's kind of like us. We we butt heads a lot because I am stubborn as fuck. But I still give in to you. Not always. No, but a lot we of the time. We compromise plenty of times. But I give in to you because I don't like to fight. The first example of this would be the comp- accompanying him to California taking time out of her successful matrimonial law practice. As he left for the L.A. sunshine, Douglas told journalists, quote, It is very important to me at the moment to do something different because I don't want to be indelibly stained with Hitchhiker my, my entire career. I probably am already, but I would like to prove to the world out there that there are other things I can do as well. I would like to write a novel which wasn't science fiction. I want to, watch, I want to write a stage play. And the next thing I'm about to do, in fact, is, in a way, a slightly small thing. A friend and I are going off to write a sort of dictionary. The third member of the Californian expedition, therefore, was John Lloyd. John had made good use of the place name definitions game from what they had played in Corfu, with the very best entries being printed as the Oxtail English Dictionary. When Douglas discovered that John planned to compile an entire book of them, however, he brought in Ed Victor, and in September of 1981, Ed took the two friends to lunch to celebrate the landing of a deal with Pan and Faber and Faber for what would come to be published two years later as The Meaning of Liff. Liff was never a major break from Hitchhiker for Adams, but a hugely pleasurable project which he could read and reread, taking pride in it, less critically than in his solo work. Seven years later, they would do an updated version, the deeper meaning of Liff. While out in California, they tried to sell the idea of a hitchhiker movie. It's something that Douglas had tried hard doing before, but to no avail. But 
This time, it seemed like it might really happen. They even gave Ivan Reitman the go-ahead for purchase of the rights to Columbia Pictures for 200,000 pounds. Douglas decided that Islington was no place to write a movie, so Jane stopped her practice, and they moved to Hollywood in early 1983. Um, Ivan Reitman, go on to do one of the greatest comedies of all time, and Ghostbusters. And many others. Animal House and, and all those. Other, but Some of the greatest 80s some, movies some, ever. Some of the greatest movies, period. Well, yeah, most of the greatest movies come from the 80s, so... I'm not going to argue with that. For once. Oh. Jane took the California bar exam and passed easily. Um, she was surprised that there were so many multiple choice questions on the uh, on an American bar exam. Because apparently, they're not multiple choice over in England. Because Americans are stupid. <laughs> she did this while Douglas began writing. But writing for a movie in Hollywood isn't like writing a TV or radio show. He sent Reitman a 275-page screenplay. Most 100-minute movies are about 115 pages. Plus, it was filled with private in-jokes that only he and his friends would catch on to. It must have been uncommonly embarrassing for a writer as fetid as Douglas to be so out of his depth, but he knuckled down, did his research, and worked very hard on his second draft trying to reimagine his story to Reitman's taste, despite the obvious challenges this presented. Quote, There's a certain structural problem that I haven't quite solved. Normally, any movie has its big climax at the end. So when you have a movie that starts with the earth being blown up, it's hard to work out exactly how you end that movie. Of course, on the radio and television, you don't need to end it. It just carried on and on and on. However, the more he rewrote, the less he and the producers liked it, and eventually he just wanted to leave Hollywood for good. After seven months in California, they headed back to Islington. Because they, they keep they, they kept wanting to change things. Uh, Reitman didn't like the number forty-two. He didn't he didn't understand why. Fuck it was, you. He didn't understand why it was fun. It was too English for an American audience, which is what. Publishers and producers say, American people don't say things are too English. We love English comedy. It's the people who are putting it out that think it's too English. Yeah, like fucking, I love Dairy Girls. Yes, you do. I love my English shows. Yes, you do. Don't take that shit away from me and get season three on TV right now. A few months after Douglas and Jane returned home, Ed was very happy indeed to announce that his client would be writing a whole new entry for what was already incorrectly being termed his trilogy, for a three-quarters of a million dollars. The runaway success for the first Hitchhiker book had been celebrated in January with a special star-studded party at which Douglas was awarded a, gold, a golden pan for a million sales, and so the expectations for a fourth novel were bound to be high. Adams admitted, quote, going home and having felt abyss disoriented, there was a certain amount of running for cover at that point, which is why I agreed to write another Hitchhiker book, simply because it was something I knew. The problem is that you can say no to something 99 times, and you only have to say yes once, and you're committed. So, to be honest, I really shouldn't have written the fourth Hitchhiker book, and I felt that when I was writing it. I did the best I could, but it wasn't, you know, really from the heart. It was a real trial and struggle to write it. 
Victor had wanted the fourth installment to be known as God's Final Message to His Creation, as that was the main narrative reason for another episode. But Douglas was already certain that So Long and Thanks for All the Fish would be the title of his fourth book, aiming as far as possible to use only phrases from the first story, embellishing the impression that there was a carefully worked out arc to his saga, which there was not. What his new story would actually be, however, required more consideration. Often numerous oddities or loose ends in previous books suggested his way forward, and this time the exodus of the dolphins would take precedent. So long and thanks for all the fish. I mean, I love that fucking song. It is a great song. In late 1983, however, Adams was first visited by budding journalist Neil Gaiman who interviewed his hero for Penthouse. Nice. Particularly with the view of getting the lowdown on what was next in store for Arthur. A second press release was also to tantalize fans by giving away some of the ideas brewing in Adams' mind, most of which never got anywhere near any hitchhiker product, including Wonko the Sane and his remarkable asylum, Noslenda Bibenda, the galaxy's greatest clam opener. An ultra walrus with an embarrassing past. A lorry driver who has the most extraordinary reason for complaining about the weather. Marvin, the paranoid android for whom even the good times are bad. Marvin. Marvin, everybody's favorite. Zaphoid Beeblebrox, ex-galactic president with two heads, at least one of which is saner than an emu on acid. And introducing a leg. A leg. A leg. A leg. Ultimately, only Wonko, the dolphin expert and the only sane person in California, whose inside-out madhouse declaring the rest of the world insane was inspired by a genuine lawsuit evading direction on an American packet of toothpicks, the truck-driving rain god Rob McKenna, and, of course, Marvin. But in an appearance in, in So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, with even Zaphoid staying offstage because Adams admitted, quote, it was like a chore. People were saying, let's have a Zaphoid bit. And I didn't feel like doing a Zaphoid bit. You see, I didn't even want to do Marvin. But then what happened was I finally had an idea of something I wanted to do that would have to involve Marvin, which is the way it should be. Because <laughs> Marvin is an awesome character. Back on home ground, geographically and creatively, as 1984 rolled around, Adams knew that it was time to really get to grips with honoring the breathtaking advance for his fourth book. An advance which had largely been provided by foreign publishers, including Simon and Schuster in the USA. So naturally, he got right to work on finding something else entirely to do. And that is where we will pick up for the third and final episode of Douglas Adams. Yay! That's exciting. <laughs> I mean, aside from him being a slut, I love him even more. He's not a slut. He sleeps around. Wrap it before you tap it, bro. You don't have any kids. He said he was careless. 
Uh, he could be careless. Which means he didn't wrap it before that he That doesn't mean it. that's not necessarily that way. He, he was careless. If he, in the 70s and 80s, he, he wasn't. He, he was He was careless in the fact that he fell in love with a married woman. I'm sure that's not the only way he was care- careless. So, he fell in love with a married woman. That's what the, when, when they talk about him being careless. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, if you're going to... You're going to be with a married woman, you have an affair with a married woman, but fall in love with one, it makes things much more complicated. And sleeping with people who they, are your roommates. No, these people were specifically excluded off the list because they would have had sex with him. But Jan seemed like, Jane seemed like the uh, the best fit. So she's the one who moved in and... And if R. Kelly would have been alive back they then, he would have been singing up. Bump and Grind every single night for them. Maybe. Think of all that, that's the one part you focus on. No, that's not the one part I focus on, but that is just... He's... I'm sure he slept around with more women than that. Well, it said that he liked women. And, I'm sure he, he did. He, he, had, he, he had relations with other women. He's allowed to have relations. He was, he was, you know, a young... Rich guy. He's allowed to have relations with other women. I'm just saying he he's got around. Okay. Most guys most most rich guys in their, you know, twenties and thirties get around. Yeah, true, but I'm still gonna call them sluts. Okay. Whatever. You do whatever you naughty, want. Naughty 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 naughty. Okay. Well let's get to our social so we get the fuck out of here and you can quit being the way you're being. Judge Brendel? Yes. That's me. You shouldn't be. Okay. Anyway, on the Twitter and Instagram, I am at ECJBAT. We are at OpenAFING Book, and we are at Audio Parfait. I'm Young ETAM6 on Twitter, Young ETAM on Instagram. Again, (laughs) I'll change them eventually. No, you won't. Uh, Go to our Patreon, patreonaudioparfait.com. We're still going to shout out for our, our newest patron. My bestest friend, Angie, Angelo Guthrie, because she's fucking awesome, and uh, you're all losers because you don't, you know, get on the Patreon shit. <laughs> I usually have the entire ending of the episode down, written down here, and I just didn't do it, so I'm just going to wing it because I can't remember exactly all the things. Email us, info at audioparfait.com, and let us know uh, any authors you want us to cover. We're doing a good job. We're doing a bad job. Just well, you know, shoot the shit. I don't care. Just email us something. Uh you can go to our website, audioparfait.com. You can get all the episodes of this show, including our weekday Cliff Notes episodes and episodes of our other podcast. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt where we talk about the rumors and the news going on in the wrestling world and how much we love and hate it all at the same time. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I know I got more. Oh, go to our Goodreads <laughs> page, uh, goodreads.com slash audioparfait. Uh, Stephanie's got a about a million books on there that she has read or is going to read. And you can see the books that I have read and um, referenced in writing and researching all these stories that we've done. Yes, yes. I haven't read a book lately because kids are back in school and mommy teacher time since their e-learners has taken over. And I'm mentally exhausted due to that. Yeah. And like we've been saying for the past month or so, go out, go to your local library, go to your local bookstore, 
buy a book from a local author. They all need your help right now. It's difficult for everybody. So if you can do that a little bit to help somebody else out, do it. You want to do a little bit to help other people out too? Put on your mask. Wear your mask. Wear the fucking mask. Literally the easiest thing you could possibly do to keep yourself, your family, and the people around you safe is just put a piece of cloth over your face for the 10 minutes you're in the fucking grocery store. It's not that hard. I walk around in the heat for eight hours a day with a mask on my face at my other job. If I can do it, you can do it. Plus, I don't want to keep these kids home all year. Yeah. All these people that are complaining about how they can't go anywhere and do anything, put your fucking mask on. This thing would be over in a few weeks. Just put your mask on. That's all it takes. I want to take my kids out trick-or-treating and we can't do it if can't go to anybody else's house. Now I think we're done. Yes. All right. Well, as we say every week, take care of yourselves, take care of one another, and between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right, guys. We'll see you. Bye, guys.